Uh, my name is Erin Mollenhauer and I'm the team leader library and archives at Moore Theological College in Sydney. Uh, so Moore College is the Theological College of the Anglican Diocese of Sydney and it's Donald Robinson Library is the largest theological library in Australia with significant rare and archival collections. Our showcase events highlight a particular aspect of the collection inviting scholars to interact and interpret with it. Um, I'm just going to open with a prayer which incorporates the college's uh, welcome uh, acknowledgement of country. Um, so please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are creator of all that is. We acknowledge that in your providence you gave custodianship of the land on which Moore College stands to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And this evening we acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we live and work from home. We acknowledge with sorrow the painful history between the Aboriginal people and the later settlers of this land. And we pray that we may work together for reconciliation and justice for all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So our speaker this evening is Nicole Starling. She has recently completed a PhD in Australian religious history at Macquarie University. Uh, researching the relationship between religious belief and secular morality in the temperance movement during the middle decades of the 19th century. Nicole has lectured on church history since 2014 and her published research includes articles on evangelical history, the temperance movement and the ministry of women in early colonial Australia. And her presentation this evening is called Anglicans and Temperance in Australia 1830 to 1930. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. Uh, okay, now I'll share my screen. <laughs> well, thank you for having me speak on a topic that I find enormously fascinating. I, the temperance movement more broadly, I find interesting for two main reasons. In the first place, uh, I think it merits study because of its importance in and of itself as a major social movement of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The fact that it rose so rapidly, became so powerful, and then disappeared almost completely, make it a phenomenon that cries out for historical investigation. And the problems that it was seeking to address have not exactly disappeared. So it's a topic that's interesting in and of itself. And then secondly, I find it interesting at another level because of the ways in which it intersected with other movements and belief systems of the period. The attitudes people took on temperance were often an, an index of their broader views on religion, politics and social transformation. My particular topic for tonight, the topic of Anglicans and temperance is interesting, not because Anglicans were particularly prominent within the movement, for most of the movement's history, they weren't actually, but it's interesting precisely for that reason. The points at which they didn't get involved tell us something about the movement and something about Anglicans. And the points at which they did get involved and the ways in which they did so are also quite revealing, but we'll get to that. First, I want to start with a bit of background. The late 18th century, 
and early 19th century in the English speaking world saw a pronounced shift in public perceptions of alcohol and alcohol consumption. The 18th century had seen a massive increase in the distillation and consumption of gin and other spirits and attempts to reduce consumption by the licensing system created under the 1736 Gin Act had been spectacularly unsuccessful. Much of the English speaking world had come to see distilled spirits in and of themselves as the chief source of the social and economic problems that the rapidly growing industrialised cities were beset by. Spirits were seen as containing within their intrinsic chemical composition the causes of habitual drunkenness, to use the 18th century terminology. Beer and wine, on the other hand, were widely regarded as harmless or positively beneficial if drunk in moderation. Hence the prosperity and good order of William Hogarth's picture of Beer Street pictured here, in contrast with the misery and criminality of Gin Lane. In response to these issues, a new and rapidly growing temperance movement burst into existence in the early 19th century across the English-speaking world. It was formed as an attempt to ameliorate those social problems that were perceived to be the consequence of excessive consumption of distilled spirits. Groups known as temperance societies were established across the English-speaking world. Across the 19th century, and into the 20th, the form and fortunes of the temperance movement ebbed and flowed. In Australia, the stages in its evolution corresponded roughly with developments in the international movement, but there were also some noteworthy ways in which the movement in Australia was shaped by unique local conditions. There were four overlapping waves throughout the century. The first which emerged in the early years of the 1830s was a traditional middle-class movement led by clergymen and middle-class reformers. It reflected the influence of earlier societies in 18th and early 19th century England aimed at the reformation of manners. This anti-spirits temperance movement cast the problem of drunkenness in class terms. It sought to recruit in the words of the British and Foreign Temperance Society, the whole of the sober, the respectable, the influential and the Christian portion of the community into a campaign for the improvement of the wider society. Members were asked to sign a pledge saying that they would not drink spirits and would drink other liquor in moderation. When temperance societies emerged in England in the 1830s, the Anglican Church took no official position on the issue, but individuals and clergy were free to support them. A number were recruited at this stage, but this was uncontroversial because they were only affirming what the church already taught and only had to slightly change their drinking patterns by avoiding spirits. For evangelical Anglicans, temperance societies were similar in nature to a range of other cooperative philanthropic ventures that they were commonly involved in, including abolitionist societies, mission organisations, benevolent societies and societies for the promotion of Bible reading. It was not uncommon, therefore, for evangelical Anglicans to be found among the supporters of the first wave temperance societies. In Van Diemen's land, the Reverend Philip Palmer was the chair and secretary of the first temperance society, uh, which began meeting in Hobart in 1832. The pattern was the same in the colony of New South Wales, uh, which began meeting uh, in uh, 1833. 
The uh, Reverend William Cabot of St Philip's Church was a frequent speech, speaker at the meetings. And the Reverend Richard Hill, who was rector at St James's Church, was also involved in the society, serving as one of its secretaries before his sudden death in 1836. But while some of the evangelical clergy supported the cause, the leadership of the First Wave Society still tended to be dominated by nonconformists and in some cases Catholics. In Hobart, Quaker missionaries James Backhouse and George Washington Walker uh, were the instigators and backbone of the society, along with some local Methodists. In Sydney, Congregational Minister William Pascoe Crook shared, shared the first meeting in 1837. 33, I'm sorry, and the Catholic priest, uh, Reverend John McEncroe, was a strong supporter. And Baptist pastor John Saunders, who'd arrived in Sydney in the next year, immediately threw in his lot with the movement and came to be known as the Apostle of Temperance in New South Wales. This tendency became a matter of public controversy at a meeting of the Temperance Society in Sydney in 1839 when Richard Windia, a lay member of the Church of England, offended many of the people present by praising Saunders for his energetic involvement in a cooperative venture such as the temperance movement. The offence was deepened by Windia's further observation that Roman Catholic and dissenting ministers were more involved than their Episcopalian brothers. His praise of these men to the general unhappiness in the crowd led to the general unhappiness in the crowd. And according to some reports, the hissing of Bishop Broughton's clerk. Broughton had not been a big supporter of the society, which was probably just as much about his opinion of the other churches as it was an expression of his personal views on alcohol. The early years of the temperance movement coincided with the debate surrounding the passing of the Church Act in 1836, which legislated for state aid to be given to Presbyterians and Catholics as well as Anglicans. This approach, which was sponsored by Governor Burke, was bitterly opposed by Broughton and set him at odds with most of the colony's Catholic and dissenting clergy. Uh, then the second wave emerged in the late 1830s. Uh, that late 1830s saw a parting of the ways within the temperance movement, initiated by a growing push from within the membership for the pledge to go beyond the original society's pledge to abstain from spirits and embrace a policy of total abstinence from all alcoholic beverages. In some cases, the temperance societies became total abstinence or teetotal societies, but more often the teetotalers organized themselves into brand new societies with their own distinctive practices, composition and ethos. There were a number of reasons for this shift. First, there was an increasing awareness of the fact that uh, spirits, wine and beer all contained the same intoxicating element. Second, working class members were critical of middle class temperance leaders forbidding the drinking of spirits, which tended to be the drink of choice for working men and women, while continuing to indulge in wine themselves. Linked to this, working class members wished to lead their own societies and have greater autonomy within the movement. The groups that emerged were much more directly focused than the first wave societies on the work of reclaiming drunkards, which affected the format and frequency of the meetings. Given that they wanted to keep habitual drunkards away from their regular drinking holes, a weekly meeting was needed in place of the quarterly rhythm that was generally followed by the original temperance societies. There were speakers from the floor, 
many of whom shared their testimony of how they'd been reformed from their habitual drunkenness through following the principles of total abstinence. They also organised other social gatherings and rational amusements, which were aimed at providing an alternative to the public house for working class members. In this period, large tea parties and parades were organised. Coffee houses and reading rooms were established and temperance halls were built. The first wave moderationist societies did not last long after the rise of the new teetotal societies. In response to the temperance movement's shift of focus from moderation to total abstinence, most Anglican clergy who had been involved in the first wave of the movement withdrew their support. A small number, however, most of whom were evangelical in outlook, did become supporters of the new teetotal societies. And the pattern in Australia was no different. In Melbourne, when it was suggested in 1839 that a total abstinence pledge should be adopted as the official pledge of the Temperance Society, the Reverend James Grills, the first Anglican minister in the district, argued against this, claiming that the moderation pledge was sufficient. In Sydney, Hobart and Launceston, there were similar responses. At the meeting in Sydney in 1838, when it was suggested that they go the whole hog and swear off all liquor, the response was not enthusiastic. It was decided that they should all agree to disagree and go their separate ways. Once the Total Abstinence Society in Sydney was formed, the Temperance Society declined until it stopped meeting in 1842. The Tasmanian Temperance Societies had all but stopped meeting by the time Total Abstinence Societies were established in Launceston and Hobart in the early 1840s. Both were led by Quakers and Methodists but struggled to achieve any support from Anglican clergy when they were established. In Hobart, while the Evangelical Reverend Philip Palmer had supported the Temperance Society, he would not sign the Total Abstinence Pledge. The absence of Anglican clergy did not go unnoticed. One of the strongest opponents of temperance in Hobart was the head of the Licensed Victuallers Association, John Morgan. He pointed out in scathing terms the lack of mainstream clerical sanction for the teetotalers in Hobart and the dominance of the Quakers in the movement's leadership. Where are the heads of the English, Scots and Catholic churches on such occasions in this colony, he asked. Are either of them or the ministers or the, uh, of the other denominations of Christians total abstinence men? In their absence, he pointed out, it was reserved for an indescribable sect to supply their places and to lay down rules for the future religious guidance and conduct of the people. Now, the response of our Anglican clergy in Australia was typical of the response of the Anglican church, particularly high churchmen to teetotal societies. Apart from nervousness about the working class leadership of these new societies and the requirement of the teetotalists that they give up their own wine drinking, the most common criticism of teetotalism from religious quarters was the claim that the temperance movement sought to replace the gospel with a secular means of salvation. Methodist George Allen noted that many Anglicans in Sydney were suspicious of any reform independent of the church. Many seem to have the same attitude expressed at a meeting in 1835, that they were already members of a very large temperance society, the Christian church. Concern originated in many cases from a fear that the pledge replaced the gospel as a means of reformation. While many within the church were happy to preach against drunkenness, 
They argued that the best approach was moderation rather than total abstinence. One notable exception to this trend was the evangelical Anglican clergyman, the Reverend Alfred Stackhouse. Stackhouse was based near Launceston and enthusiastically supported the teetotal cause, making temperance work a key element of his own parish ministry. Stackhouse had come to a teetotal position of his own accord after observing the drunken behaviour of his fellow students at Lincoln College in Oxford, as well as that of the clergyman he lived with at his first curacy. At about the same time, through the influence of his sister, he became a believer in the doctrine of the new birth and decided to align himself with the Evangelical Party in the Church of England. From 1838, Stackhouse spent two years in India as a chaplain in Bombay for the East India Company, where his ministry would have involved working closely with the influential teetotal leader, Archdeacon Henry Jeffries. Now, when Stackhouse arrived in Australia, having been transferred from Bombay due to ill health, he found the Tasmanian Teetotal Society already in existence. In June 1845, he established a branch of the society in his own parish of Perth, which was just outside of Launceston. While it was part of the larger organisation, it was tightly connected to his parish ministry. The Temperance Hall was built from donations solicited by Stackhouse and doubled as the church's Sunday school room, and he concentrated his efforts in the temperance cause on enlisting those within his own church. Stackhouse also actively promoted the teetotal society from the pulpit. He encouraged his parishioners to be teetotalers, promoting teetotalism as a family matter, and especially encouraging children to sign the pledge. Stackhouse expressed disappointment that so many Christians, most notably his fellow Anglicans, had not joined the cause. In July 1846, he gave a lecture to the Society in Launceston that was subsequently published as a pamphlet entitled Religious Objections to Teetotal Societies Considered in Connection with Christian Duty, a closely similar title to that of an earlier pamphlet that had been written by Archdeacon Jeffries in 1842. While Stackhouse's pamphlet attempted to refute a number of different objections to the teetotal cause, the one on which he expended the most energy was the accusation that teetotal societies replaced the gospel with an alternative source of salvation. In response to this objection, Stackhouse commenced by asserting the orthodoxy of his fellow teetotalists. The doctrine of Christ crucified, applied by the Holy Spirit and believed with the heart, is rightly said to be the method of salvation, both from sin and the consequences of sin, which God has appointed. This all Christian teetotalers acknowledge, and whatever may be the opinion of individual members, teetotal societies do not occupy a position in which they can be compared with this, still less are they substitutes in its place. Teetotal societies do not profess to be saviours, nor do they presume to add to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, he went on to insist that teetotal societies in their proper place were the most important means for bringing about the salvation of a certain class of sinners and, from the, and for the preservation of others from a fatal snare. Teetotal societies, he argued, are no replacement for the sunlight of the gospel, but they open the shutters for the admission of its light and warmth. 
His explanation of how they do this, acting as pioneers for the gospel, focuses on the way in which they remove the obstacles to church attendance by enabling the drunkard to be sober-minded and respectably dressed. The devil is cast out, for he sits clothed and in his right mind. Now, tellingly, his application of the image of the Gadarene demoniac to the case of the reformed drunkard reverses the sequence of the biblical narrative. In the case of the habitual drunkard, the social codes of respectability require that he first have the devil of inebriation cast out so that he can be clothed and in his right mind, and only then, once he has become sober, rational and respectable, come to church, hear the gospel and encounter Christ. Stackhouse differed from many other Christian temperance activists in this period whose post-millennial beliefs gave rise to bold hopes that the success of temperance in tandem with the preaching of the gospel and a variety of other reform programs would usher in the reign of Christ on earth. Stackhouse did not make claims of this sort. As a pre-millennialist, he spoke less than many of his predecessors and peers about the power of teetotalism to change society at large, nor did he make claims about a prophetic or providential guarantee of the movement's success. Teetotalism, according to his account, was less about the power of Christian evangelism and social activism to transform the world, and more about preserving the distinctiveness of the little flock that was the true church from a corrupted culture and a compromised religious nominalism. So the third way, well, by the early 1830s, as temperance advocates became increasingly dissatisfied with the progress that had been achieved through reliance on moral suasion, they used the pledge in different ways, focusing their efforts on children and combining their recruitment drives with revivalist preaching campaigns. They also changed strategies and relied more on legal suasion, focusing more on reforming legislation and changing the behaviour of individuals. Many Anglicans re-engaged during this wave of temperance activity. Uh, in America in 1851, the state of Maine had passed a law prohibiting all traffic in liquor, both wholesale and retail within the state. News of this victory influenced the strategies adopted by temperance societies throughout the world. The shift to legal suasion presented new opportunities for Anglicans to support the movement. Evangelicals like Stackhouse and his fellow Anglican Reverend Henry Phibbs Fry supported a petition in 1853, which lobbied for Sunday closing, and then supported the Tasmanian Temperance Alliance, which began in 1856 and was aimed at uh, introducing prohibition to Tasmania. Some who had balked at being involved in teetotal societies supported legal suasion as well. Evangelical Bishop Charles Perry had reportedly declined an invitation to chair a meeting of the Melbourne Total Abstinence Society soon after his arrival in 1848 and had not signed the pledge, but he was keen for legislative change. In 1854, he was instrumental in establishing the Church of England Association for Promoting Temperance, which was aimed at introducing the main law to Victoria. In Sydney also, a number of Anglicans lobbied for law reform, including the Dean of Sydney and layman, uh, Sir Alfred Stephen. Stephen was not a teetotaler, but argued strongly that strong drink was responsible for much of the crime that he was seeing in Sydney. 
1870, he published uh, as a pamphlet his Address on Intemperance and the Licensing System. Another change to occur from the 1850s onwards was the establishment of temperance societies attached to churches, for both children and adults. Uh, Anglican churches became involved in this as well. In Tasmania, Alfred Stackhouse continued with his church-based teetotal work and Henry Phibbs Fry followed suit in 1851. They also encouraged children's temperance. Fry was one of the first to start a Band of Hope group in his parish in Hobart in 1854. Band of Hope groups emerged in England in 1847 as temperance groups designed specifically for children. This was the first temperance project that a broader base of Anglicans enthusiastically supported. Many Band of Hope groups became attached to Anglican churches meeting on the church premises. By the 1860s, the official attitude towards temperance within the Anglican Church more broadly began to change. One suggested reason for this is that in England by the 1860s, many people were shifting their allegiances to nonconformist churches. Uh, and in some parts of England, particularly in the north, as few as 15% of people were part of the Anglican Church. In response, the church attempted to engage with the social and cultural lives of the community. Another factor which led to this change in attitude was the publication in 1860 of Haste to the Rescue by Julia Whiteman, the wife of an Anglican minister. In her book, she argued that many men were being lost to the church because of their experience with alcohol. She wrote about the way in which she was able to reach and save these men through a teetotal society she had started in the parish. This book was distributed widely and led to a change of opinions amongst many of the clergy. Uh, by the 1870s, there was a shift also in the uh, success and respectability of temperance within the church and the Church of England Temperance Society was formed. The organisation soon started its own publication called the Church of England Temperance Chronicle, which influenced Anglicans throughout the world. In 1875, Queen Victoria herself agreed to become the society's patron on the understanding that it was an organisation which includes all who advocate temperance without insisting necessarily on total abstinence. And the support of Basil and Ernest Wilberforce, sons of Samuel Wilberforce and grandsons of William Wilberforce was also seen as a huge boost for the cause. Australian Anglican churches were influenced by these events as well. From 1874, Church of England temperance societies were formed across the country. They followed the English model, which allowed for members to choose between a moderationist pledge and a total abstinence pledge. Now, while some did pledge to abstain from all liquor, most pledged to discourage intemperance instead. These groups were closely associated and controlled by the church itself. At the highest level, the society was overseen by the bishop, and at the local level, the parish priest would oversee the parochial branches. Now, even this form of moderationist society met with some concern from some within the church. Many still held to the view that the church itself was a temperance society. In proposing the introduction of such a society at Synod in 1874, Archbishop of Sydney, Frederick Barker, acknowledged that so great a diversity of opinion exists upon this subject, it is hardly to be expected that we should be unanimous in adopting a common line of action. 
Yet we must all agree that a large proportion of the moral and social evils we deplore have their origin in intemperance. Despite the diversity of opinion, the Church of England Temperance Society was established in Sydney and continued meeting into the 20th century. Because the model depended on the local uh, parish structure, the success of the model tended to be dependent on the enthusiasm of the local clergy. Fourth way. Now, during the final decades of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th, the political fortunes of the temperance movement reached their peak. While the movement was still dominated by non-conformist Protestants, it was beginning to enjoy broader support. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, the WCTU, was introduced in Australia from 1882 onwards and attracted the support of thousands of women. The causes of suffrage and temperance became intertwined as temperance advocates realised they would need women's votes if they were to ever achieve prohibition. While the pledge was still used by temperance societies, the focus of fourth wave activity was on legal suasion. There were campaigns for local option laws in the 1880s, early closing laws and prohibition into the 20th century. Temperance groups made local option laws their main focus in the late 19th century. This strategy aimed not at an immediate total prohibition, but prohibition as a long-term goal with smaller measures introduced in the interim. Under this strategy, ratepayers were invited to vote on the number of liquor licenses they should allow in their government area, local government area. By the 1890s, every Australian colony, with the exception of Western Australia, had some form of local option. One of the biggest campaigns of the early 20th century was the campaign for six o'clock closing of pubs. This campaign launched in the early 1900s when early closing acts in the individual states required shops to close at six. Temperance groups demanded that the same requirements be imposed on licensed hotels. There was a great deal of petitioning before referenda were held in the different states. South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania all voted in favour of closing at six and that continued on for many years. The success of the six o'clock closing campaign led temperance advocates to raise their ambitions. In the 1920s, they lobbied to extend local option measures to the state level and allow voters to elect not just a dry neighbourhood, but a dry state. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, referenda were held in each of the Australian states. No state succeeded in going dry, um, but there was a significant minority which supported statewide prohibition. Victoria gained the largest prohibition vote with 42% of the vote, while most other states managed about a third in favour. Now, this was the high point for the prohibition campaign. With the depression in the 1930s, there was a dive in alcohol consumption. And in a context of enforced moderation, support for restrictions on liquor declined. The failure of prohibition in the USA probably also contributed to a decline in enthusiasm for the movement. Now, while Anglicans were never the most dominant members of the temperance movement's fourth wave, there were some key exceptions. I'm just going to highlight four people who were active in Sydney from the 1880s onwards. The work of Courtney and Mary Smith, who went by the name Mary Courtney Smith, 
exemplified the different branches of temperance work carried out by Anglicans during this time period. They arrived in Sydney in 1887 and were enthusiastic supporters of the Church of England Temperance Society from the beginning. They both held various positions in the society and were devoted to their local branch at Holy Trinity Millers Point, the Garrison Church. As part of the Temperance Society's work at Holy Trinity, they started a mission house attached to the church for local sailors. In 1890, Courtney Smith was appointed as the second chaplain to the Seamen's Mission in Sydney, which had been established by the Anglican Church in 1881. He and Mary ministered together for five years to the sailors of the Mercantile Marine, overseeing and living in Trafalgar House in Princess Street, Miller's Point, just um, in the middle there. At the annual meeting in 1891, Archdeacon King pointed out that Trafalgar House was essentially a gospel temperance mission. He reported that in the previous year, 342 total abstinence pledges were taken. In 1892, while they were still living at Trafalgar House, the Smiths opened a home for alcoholics at Echo Point in Roseville. It became known as Rest Haven or the Inebriates Home and offered a course of treatment for people in recovery. At the time, many doctors and scientists had started using injections of bichloride of gold to treat alcoholics. Courtney Smith did not use this method, but instead gave them a place to rest, recover and work and use what was termed as moral means. They entered voluntarily and while they were there, they rose early, they swam in the ocean, they worked until 5pm with regular rest times. The property was filled with fruit and vegetables in accordance with the Smith's belief in the importance of good nutrition. Critics, such as those at the Bulletin magazine, found a lot to criticise in this model. The Bulletin hopes yet to see in Sydney and in Ebert's home under intelligent medical management and supervised by the government. Pious laymen and laywomen of the unscientific and unimaginative teetotal fattest type must inevitably botch such an enterprise. Psalms aren't an invariable antidote to the whiskey habit, and many dipsomaniacs are far too high in the scale of intelligence to find comfort in the company of the average parson and his hopelessly stupid surroundings. Well, fortunately, not all adherents to the bulletin circle were equally scathing. The writer Henry Lawson offered another point of view. In November 1898, he voluntarily placed himself in Rest Haven. He stayed for a few months. His experience here found literary expression in his short story, The Boozer's Home. In that story, he talked about his friend who had been in the home. The home, he said, didn't profess to cure anyone of drink, only to mend up shattered nerves and build up wrecked constitutions. Give them back some willpower if they weren't too far gone. And they set my old mate on his feet all right. When he went in, his life seemed lost. He had the horror of being sober. He couldn't start the day without a drink or do any business without it. He couldn't live for more than two hours without a drink, but when he came out, he didn't feel as if he wanted it. He reckons that those six weeks in the institution were the happiest he'd ever spent in his life and he wished the time had been longer. He says he'd never met with so much sympathy and genius 
and humour and human nature under one roof before. Mary Courtney Smith was also heavily involved in, in, in these projects and also in lay ministry in the diocese, as well as organisations like the WCTU. She was president of the Sydney branch for 32 years unopposed and served as New South Wales president from 1907 to 1910. As part of her role, she advocated for women's suffrage and petitioned for local option laws and six o'clock closing. She spoke throughout New South Wales on behalf of the WCTU at public meetings and in churches and was said to be a very effective speaker. Courtney Smith died in 1915 and Mary passed away in 1928. The WCTU held its own memorial service for her and her funeral was well attended with speeches from fellow temperance activists and Archdeacon Boyce gave the address. Now, Archdeacon Francis Bertie Boyce uh, was also a key leader in the temperance movement in Sydney in the movement's uh, fourth wave. He had graduated from Moore College in 1868 and was ordained as a priest under Bishop Barker. He then spent 14 years serving in the central west of New South Wales. His first involvement in the temperance movement came about in Orange in 1871 when he joined the Sons of Temperance in an attempt to encourage one of his parishioners to sign up. He then became immersed in the cause himself as he saw uh, the way alcohol led to what he described as immorality, pauperism, lunacy and crime. He saw it as his duty to do whatever he could to fight its influence. He moved back to Sydney in 1882, working at St Bartholomew's Piermont for two years before moving on to St Paul's Red Firm where he spent the next 46 years. Um, both areas were poverty stricken and filled with slums. And one of the issues he worked for was the alleviation of unemployment distress and he campaigned for slum clearance. But what he described as the great cause uh, was temperance. Boyce saw the impact uh, of alcohol in the lives of those within his parish. And like many temperance reformers before him, he believed that its eradication would lead to a decrease in the poverty and suffering he was observing. How can I help the poor, he asked. The answer was to dethrone and cast out King Alcohol. While Boyce was a believer in the value of the pledge and encouraged people to abstain as an example to others, the main focus of Boyce's work was in legislative reform. He argued that moral suasion alone will not work. In the drink problem in Australia, he gives the example of the collapse of teetotalism in Ireland in the 1840s, which had been enormously popular and had gained lots of pledge signing. But he argued that it failed because uh, the bars were kept open and therefore the temptation remained. The state made it easy to do wrong and hard to do right instead of the reverse. Boyce's conviction of the need for legislative reform can be seen most clearly in his work. He was a leader in the campaigns for legislative change in New South Wales. In 1882, he founded the New South Wales Alliance and for 24 years occupied either the office of president or secretary of the Alliance. Now the Alliance brought together all the disparate temperance and lobby groups uh, under one umbrella and made them a stronger force 
in pushing for legislative reform. Boyce was very astute politically and worked alongside politicians uh, to agitate for legislative change. Uh, most notably, Labor MP James McGowan, who was one of his parishioners, and uh, Sunday School uh, Superintendent at St Paul's as well for many years. McGowan was heavily influenced by Boyce. Given the effect of pubs on the slums in Sydney, Boyce pushed hard for local option laws to be enacted. He also pushed hard for six o'clock closing. Just days before the vote, he argued that not only would shorter hours bring New South Wales into line with other nations during wartime, but lessening the hours the pubs were open would decrease domestic violence and public brawls, as well as longer term problems like poverty. He resigned from his parish work in 1930 and died at Blackheath in the following year. He had passed on the presidency of the New South Wales Temperance Alliance to RBS Hammond in 1915 and was hopeful that the reforms he'd pushed so hard for would remain once the population had tasted their benefits. In his autobiography, he reflected that his temperance activism was his life work. And on to Robert Rodrib Stuart Hammond. Now, Hammond was uh, originally ordained in Melbourne but moved to Sydney in 1899, where he was curate at St Philip's Church Hill. From 1904 to 1911, Hammond was organising of the Mission Zone Fund, which fell under the umbrella of the Home Mission Society. It was focused on redeeming the slum population of the inner city. In this role, Hammond visited thousands of private dwellings in the working class areas of inner Sydney, converting many to Christ and temperance. He held open air meetings, ran services in factories and looked for ways to reach those who might not feel comfortable within a church building. During this phase of his ministry, he opened the first Hammond Hotel, which was for destitute men in Newtown. In 1907, he introduced and edited a weekly temperance journal, Grit, a journal of moral reform and no license. He continued this until 1942. The aim of the journal was to encourage hard work and helping your neighbour. It included republished articles about temperance reform and science, updates about the activities of the New South Wales Alliance, information about his own ministry to alcoholics at the courthouse and his ed own editorial that he called Personal Chats. And most of these have actually been digitised uh, by um, the Moore College Library and you can find them online. Uh, I found them very helpful. In 1909 to 18, he was in parish ministry in Surrey Hills before becoming rector of St Barnabas Broadway in 1918, and he remained there until 1943. During his time, the notice board fronting Broadway became famous for the weekly sermon in a sentence. You can see one of them there in the picture. While at St Barnabas, Hammond established a church-based temperance ministry. The Brotherhood of Christian Men was formed and met every Wednesday night at Broadway. Members pledged to commit themselves to daily prayer and Bible reading and take a pledge to abstain from all intoxicating liquor. Its meetings attracted numbers of 200 to 300 men a week. One of these was Arthur Stace, also known as Mr Eternity, who gave up alcohol after attending a Wednesday night meeting in August 1930. Here's a picture here of... Um, Arthur Stace, just in the corner of a Hammond Hotel, who's just the man on the left-hand side of the picture there. 
Now, temperance activism for Hammond was intertwined with all uh, facets of his ministry. He viewed his role as a disciple of Jesus as including the call to stand for those things which promote his kingdom and against those which hindered it. Uh, he was also involved in uh, temperance uh, legislative campaigns as well, uh, and he served as president of the Australasian Temperance Society in 1916 to 41, uh, uh, and the New South Wales Alliance from 1916 to 25, and then again from 1929. And he obviously supported local option and six o'clock closing campaigns during that time. Uh, he continued to serve until 1943 when he retired and moved to Beecroft and died three years later. And uh, these uh, it's a shot of some other things that you can find in the Moore College Library, just some of his personal chats um, that he um, wrote during the um, referendum in 1928. After the fourth wave, well, by the end of World War II, the temperance movement was well and truly in decline and alcohol consumption was starting to rise. In this period, temperance advocates continued to push for legislative change. While prohibition was increasingly unpopular, six o'clock closing endured into the post-war era. Uh, it continued into the 1950s and 60s in most states. Uh, some other um, pamphlets that you can find in the library that have been digitised. These are from the 1945 campaign. The Reverend Bernard Judd and his wife Ida were key leaders in this period uh, in Sydney. Uh, Bernard Judd was mentored by Hammond and he pursued temperance work enthusiastically. Ida was the New South Wales president and national treasurer of the WCTU at various times. Uh, and Moore College has a lot of their papers digitised as well, I should mention. And by the 1960s, the aim of the movement was toward the provision of treatment of alcoholics. In fact, the, even the term alcoholic was a fairly new one uh, in the 1950s and 60s, really. Uh, they also focused on rules about blood alcohol limits and other measures to deal with the issue of drink driving and towards alcohol um, education efforts in schools. In conclusion, uh, the story of Anglican involvement in the temperance movement and the story too of those within Anglicanism who opposed the movement or uh, remained disengaged from it offers a revealing insight into the history of Anglicanism in Australia. Six observations stand out by way of summary. Uh, in the first place, contrary to the reputation that both Anglicans and temperance activists have come to have in some quarters, the sort of involvement that Anglicans such as the Smiths, Bertie Boyce and RBS Hammond had in the movement suggest a strongly felt concern for the weakest and most vulnerable members of society and an active sustained engagement in programs aimed at making a positive difference to the welfare of the wider community. This was not a version of temperance or teetotalism that was all about preserving uh, and displaying the sobriety and moral superiority of the already sober and religious. Nor was it a version of Anglicanism that stood back disengaged from the social problems of the day. It was an active, compassionate, sleeves rolled up kind of piety motivated by gospel convictions and aiming to accomplish practical this worldly good. Second, and this was both a limiting factor on Anglican involvement in the movement and a strength that Anglicans often brought to the movement when they did get involved, 
the history of Anglicanism and temperance highlights the bias toward moderation and the suspicion of zealotry and extremism that have often distinguished Anglicans from nonconformists across the centuries. At some points in the movement's history, this moderationist tendency kept Anglicans entirely aloof from its activities. Um, at other points, for those who did get involved, it created a space for modified versions of the pledge and societies that permitted cooperation between teetotalers and non-teetotalers. These societies sometimes lacked the drive and dynamism of the hardline teetotal groups, but they also avoided some of the worst tendencies to which the teetotal and hyper-teetotal groups prone. A third and related point is the relative rarity with which Anglicans who became involved in the temperance movement signed up to the utopianism that often went with it. In some versions of temperance and teetotal activism, this utopianism was driven by an ideology of secular progressivism. More commonly, it was driven by an explicitly Christian post-millennialism or by a combination of the two. Anglicans who involved themselves in the temperance movement were not entirely immune to these tendencies of thought, but they were less prone to them than some of the other advocates and leaders within the movement. Fourthly, it's worth noting the cooperative ethos with which Anglicans who involved themselves in the movement typically operated. For most of the history of evangelicalism, it has been a movement characteristically driven forward by non-denominational and interdenominational partnerships and cooperative ventures. And the temperance movement was no exception to that. Even in cases where Anglican temperance activists formed special Anglican societies and ran church-based campaigns and groups, they were still typically engaged with the wider movement and formed broad alliances for their philanthropic work and political advocacy. Fifthly, it would be remiss of me not to comment on the role that factors of class and respectability have played in limiting and locating the kind of involvements that Anglicans had in the temperance movement. Even when Anglicans such as Stackhouse in Tasmania did get involved in the movement, it is striking how prominent questions of class and respectability were in their rhetoric and how influential such matters were in determining the form that their activism and advocacy took. And it's no coincidence too, I suspect, that Anglicans who did get involved in the fourth wave of the movement were located in places like the Rocks, Surrey Hills and Redfern, and closely involved with the lives of the urban poor who lived within their parishes. Sixthly and finally, a survey of the involvement that Anglicans have had within the temperance movement highlights the extent to which they were aware of both the connections between temperance activism and gospel proclamation and the distinctions between those two facets of their ministry. At a number of points within the movement's history, these two collapsed into one another or became disconnected altogether. But when the movement was at its healthiest, temperance work and gospel ministry were held together in a thoughtful and theologically ordered interrelation. And the evangelical Anglicans within the movement were among those who led the way in that regard. All right, thank you so much, Nicole. It was um, such a wonderful presentation. And um, I might just add that uh, all the um, digitized resources that you mentioned from Moore College Library are available on our 
repository arc.more.edu.au. Um, thank you everyone for attending this evening and um, I wish you all a very good night. Thank you.